Hello, Little Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, a couple of business items. I want to remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up June 15th, 16th, and 17th. If you want more information about that, you can go to www.btransfigure.com. And registration is still available, and it is still $50 off at this point until the end of April. So if you want the early bird pricing, you must register before April. Then it goes up by $50. And we have a conference registration to give away. We will do so on Friday, April 13th at 3 p.m. If you want to enter into this raffle, all you have to do is you go to our Twitter feed at Liturgical Inst. That's for the Liturgical Institute. You go to that feed, and about a week ago, uh, we posted a tweet about the conference. All you have to do is retweet that tweet, and you'll be entered in the raffle. You'll know which tweet it is because it's the only one that has like 20-something retweets at this point. So if you do that, there's a pretty good chance that you might get free registration to this conference. So do so before Friday, April 13th at 3 p.m. And speaking of Twitter, we have some big news. We have a Twitter account for the podcast now. It's at Liturgy Guys. We created this for Father Dan so that he can just tweet us his liturgy questions instead of just texting DMAC. And uh, it's going to facilitate a, a better conversation with, with you, our fans, instead of going right through the Liturgical Institute Twitter feed. So if you want to follow us, you go to Twitter and you follow at Liturgy Guys. We'll post podcast and we'll try to have a little more engagement with, with you, our fans. And also, you can now tweet us your liturgy questions, just like Father Dan. You don't have to send us an email, but you can still do that at questions at liturgyguys.com. So we're just trying to diversify our platform here, and we thought it might be a good idea. So follow us there tweet at us send us your liturgy questions and finally i want to remind you that we are doing our first ever live podcast recording in madison wisconsin on april 26th at the brink lounge this is for theology on tap and this is going to be the first time we've ever done a live podcast recording so it will be interesting to be sure but if you want to meet dennis chris and myself you can come to the brink lounge on april 26th at 7 p.m for theology on tap our topic for the night drunken speech Tapping into the spirit of the Mass. You are not going to want to miss it. And if you have to miss it, then we will record the podcast so you can hear it later. And finally, this week's episode. Uh, we are talking about Avery Dulles and his essay about symbolic mediation. Whew, what is that? I don't, I don't know. At least I didn't know until Dennis and Chris were talking to me about it. I like to kind of stay a little ignorant at the beginning of these podcasts so that I can... Uh, have a, a sincere wonder and awe about the stuff I'm learning. And this is one of those times where I was able to have that. I, I had no idea what we were going to be talking about. And this idea that symbols mean something, but what is the difference between a, a symbol and an allegory or a symbol and a metaphor? And how do we know that? So this is an amazing conversation about symbols, signs and symbols in the mass. What do they mean? And to, to what extent are they what they represent? So without further ado, episode 32 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Have you ever heard of the word Dulles before? 
Yes, uh, yes, there is an airport that is the dullest airport. It is the yeah. dullest airport I've ever been to. <laughs> Actually, true story, I spent three nights in Dulles Airport. Why? I was trying to make it to the beatification of John Paul II, and I was flying on a buddy pass, my friend who was an uh, airline flight attendant, and uh, I, I was flying from Denver to um, Washington, where Dulles Airport is, and then I was trying to get a flight to to Rome, but there was only one flight a day for that airline, and it left at 5 p.m. I got there the first day. I missed it because there were other people that were flying standby. The next day, I missed it again, and they have this like list going. And the last day, I I get my ticket, and I'm I'm still nervous because I saw somebody get a ticket once, and they took it away. And so I, I get my ticket. I'm like right on the jetway there. I'm about to get on the plane, and then no. five people run no. to the gate. And they're running. They're like, we're here. We made it. We made it. And then I'm like, oh, no, I'm not going to make it to Rome. And the flight attendant or the clerk there said, I can't let you guys on the plane because your luggage will not be on the plane with you. And it is our policy that I can't let you. And then I look at her and I just run onto the plane. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the seat and we're taking off. And I just like still can't believe I made the very last seat there. But uh, anyway. so What I you to, should have had is some good reading material I should have. from... Avery Dulles. Avery Dulles. That's Avery Dulles. You know why Dulles Airport is called Dulles Airport? Why? There was yes. a Secretary of State named John Foster Dulles. And in fact, Carol Burnett made her fame. That? I'm up. just kidding. I'm kidding. Carol Burnett, when she was in her 20s, became famous by singing this song. She pretended to be like a Bobby Soxer who was all infatuated. What's like, a Bobby Soxer? <laughs> no, that I don't know. That's like in the 50s. <laughs> People would run, they would run around and chase like Frankie Valley or famous singers, all the girls who would scream and ask for autographs. And, Frankie Valley was a famous singer back then. Yeah. Or, uh, the, you know, imagine the crowds of girls who would scream for the Beatles and stuff. Who are the Beatles? Yeah. Oh, gosh. You millennials know nothing before yesterday. Anyway, Were the Beatles like the Kardashians? Kind of, yeah. But look, look on YouTube. There, she sang this song called I've Got a Crush on John Foster Dulles. He was the Secretary of State and he was very. Um, known for being very very boring like exceedingly boring like no. worse than worse than chris even yeah was i know he, his name uh, was, was he under um uh, fdr i don't know later but i think it was it's probably later, later than that yeah. but that's who that Kennedy airport maybe. is named after yes and um avery dallas is his son but several of his great 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 grandparents were um secretaries of state as well so he comes from this long family of old American family Protestants. So he and then his son became a liturgist? Well, he becomes, first of all, an agnostic. He goes to Harvard. He didn't drop that low. Oh. And um, <laughs> he goes to Harvard and he gives up the faith, becomes an agnostic. He was raised Presbyterian. And then um, he was very, very smart. I mean, to, to go to Harvard and from this long, illustrious family, uh, kind of first families of America. And this is, you know, we're talking about the 40s and the 50s when Catholics are coming, to, coming of age and to have... Uh, you know, it, I don't know who would be like the descendant of George Washington becomes Catholic. It would be just a big deal. And um, Sherman's son became Catholic. Who? Sherman? General Sherman? Yeah. For, yeah, his wife was Catholic. There's a funny story about that. There's a church in... Uh, Wait, can we stick on one funny <laughs> story? This is like a tangent of a tangent. Anyway, at the time, to become Catholic, as a Harvard, illustrious, whatever, was a big deal. And he was very, very smart. Eventually becomes a Jesuit. He enters the uh, Navy in World War too, and he comes out, and he's a Jesuit, and it's a whole life of prizes, writing, intellectual things, founded all these things, taught at uh, Catholic Uni University of America for a long time, and then John Paul II made him a uh, cardinal, 
and uh, he died in... Oh, Cardinal, Cardinal Dulles. Cardinal Dulles, yes. There's some lecture series by that name. Yeah, I have heard that, actually. Yeah, so I think he died in 2008. I, I got to see him speak in Chicago once toward the end of his life, and he was walking with a cane and everything. But he's known for a couple of books, one called Models of the Church. But what I want to talk today is one called Models of Revelation. Ooh. It's a book he wrote, and there's an essay in it called Symbolic Mediation. Chris and I have both used this essay in our classes, and we both stopped using this essay in our class because we couldn't figure out what he was saying. Oh, really? But today, so we thought we'd roll it out here. We're going yeah. to try to figure out what he's saying. And so, you know, symbolic mediation, we've talked about symbol before. Mm-hmm. And Vatican II says liturgy is composed of signs and symbols. And so this language is very important. And what he wanted to do is really settle the question, like, what is a symbol versus an allegory? So, you know, Ooh, I like this. many times people will say, oh, well, you know, Jesus was, or, you know, the world is like a tree. And so let's put a tree in the church. Well, that's just some kind of relationship that's not the same. It's not rendering the other thing uh, present, for instance. This so is he, a hard question to answer. It is, right. And so he would, what he would think he was really good at is he would just flat out name a thing and give it a definition. Move to the next thing, flat out name it and uh, give it a definition. And so um, he quotes Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who is this... Uh, scholar and poet. Was he a Bobby Soxer? He was not. He was pre-Bobby Soxer. Okay, got it. And uh, he said that if symbols, it is by symbols alone that we can acquire intellectual knowledge of the divine, through symbols alone. Because how else can you know, how else can you encounter God unless God is encounterable in the ways that we encounter things, right? Sight, hearing, touch, taste, smell. We, we really don't have other ways to um, perceive things except through the senses that we have. I mean, God could infuse knowledge into you directly, but typically that doesn't happen. So we were talking about fonts in another podcast. If you see the font looking beautiful, that's how you come to know baptism is important. You're furrowing your brow, Chris. What are you ready to say? reminded of, I think this this is something Monsignor Mannion used to say, quoting somebody else. He'd say, even all immediacy is mediated. Even the most intimate knowledge has some symbolic medium that's making that immediacy. Oh, like even, like with Mary, you know, she was sent. These were messenger angels. There were still mediators from God. There's always anything yeah. that you you know wow. or express. And how has. would you know? Like you come into my office in the morning before my coffee's kicked in, and I look mad at you, like I hate mm-hmm. you. How do you know that? Because of the way you look, because of your natural resting face. But you know I hate you. <laughs> but you never tell me. <laughs> so anyways, every, everything is communicated, but there's different ways that things communicate. So the symbol, and this is the way we use the word sacrament, and most people use it improperly, because if you say is the Eucharist a symbol, they'll be like, how dare you deny the real presence? But actually what they should say is, indeed it is. It's how God is mediated to us. And he says it's the only possible expression of some invisible essence. It's the revelation of something that's invisible. If it comes to you through an earthly material reality thing, real thing, that's what you call a symbol. So the Eucharist is a symbol. It is. Uh, Well, you tell me what you understand by symbol, and I'll answer the question. Yeah, when we use this term symbol here, we mean it like the church does when she talks about a sacrament as an efficacious sign or symbol of grace. We mean it's not empty, just the contrary. It is chock full of reality, which is divine well, life. We, we talk about this altar being a symbol of Christ or the altar being Christ, and and so that's, that's me, a mediation of Christ right. through the altar, just like... The Eucharist is a mediation of God right. through the bread, but it is but it is God. So if I put the word altar on a piece of paper with an arrow 
and it says the altar's over there. That's not rendering altar as present or mm -hmm. Christ. It's just sending you somewhere else, right? So it's got a relation to the altar. It's got the same word, same name, but it's not rendering altar present to you. And so that's how you get into these different kinds of uh, parallel ideas, but they're not the same. An allegory can have many possible representations, right? You could talk about the allegory of whatever, Plato's cave or something, or you could talk about, you could, you could render the idea of an altar in a lot of different ways. It can be the altar of your heart. It can be the altar of a church. Mm. It can be the altar of whatever. But only one of those things is actually an altar. Other things have relationships, um, but they're not really um, So it But that's that. not what we mean by, by sacrament or sacramental symbol. Right, symbol. But so. you have to be on the same understanding of what symbol means if you're going to be having a dialogue about this. Right. So when they ask, U.S. Catholic has those surveys, do you believe that the Eucharist is a symbol? And people are like, oh, they don't believe in the real presence. Well, if you know what the word means, then you can say yes. But most what people you, say merely symbolic, which I remember Monsignor Mannion told us, never say merely symbolic. That's like saying merely alive. It's an immense thing to be truly a symbol. Cardinal Ratzinger says in his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, that liturgical theology is symbolic theology, a theology of symbols that connects us to what is present but hidden. So he, under, he understands what he means by symbolic theology. Symbols are efficacious. They bring along with them the reality which they symbolize. But about learning proper language, I mean, this is not just a weird Catholic thing that, oh, if you want to be a Catholic or you understand the liturgy, you have to, you have to enter into this exclusive thing. This is a very human thing. At the beginning of the podcast, you were explaining what the, the little clicker is. Mm -hmm. The slate. Yeah, so if, you, if you're going to live in the world of movies or TV or communication mm -hmm. or something like that, well, it's just, you just pick up the language and you understand what it means so mm -hmm. that when Jesse says slate or Bobby socks or whatever it is, <laughs> you know, when you live in that culture, well, yeah, it makes sense. And part of what liturgical catechesis is, and this is what Dulles is trying to do too, is to help refine our language, help us to understand our language so that we discuss and engage and participate in liturgical things. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. I know what he's talking about. Right. So there's two things that this rescues us from. One is I don't need external material stuff. All I do is sit in a room alone and I, you know, give myself to Jesus and then I get all the grace I need. I don't need the sacraments. I don't need any, I have a right. personal relationship with Christ. Right. Or I can, why do I have to go to a church? I can sit in my room Got alone it. and pray. So what he says is that real revelation from God never occurs in a purely interior or unmediated encounter. It comes through something exterior and interior uh, all, always. And that this exterior, per, externally perceived sign uh, with the senses is more than that. It, he says it works mysteriously on human consciousness to suggest more than it can clearly describe. So, you know, a, an atheist would look at the Blessed Sacrament and say, well, it's that little wafer there. That doesn't look like much. And um, if someone really sees with the eyes of faith, they know that it's more than it looks like. And so it has a, a certain limitation in its earthly experience, but it has a superabundance of meaning. And that's different from an indicator. So a symbol renders present what it but it uh, manifests. An indicator says, hey, it's over there somewhere, and it directs you somewhere else. And also that multiplicity of meaning, too, makes an indicator or signal different from a, a proper symbol as well. So as you say, to, to see the Eucharist and the monstrance with the eyes of faith, it means too many things that can possibly even be expressed. But if you're looking for the, the men's room or something like that, you want that sign to mean one thing. You don't want to be able to read that and say, oh, well, that can mean 10 possible different things. Or if your doctor gives you a diagnosis or something like that, or your tax attorney, something, you want straight answers. You don't want him to deliver your diagnosis in a poem <laughs> or something like that. Well, what did you this, mean by that? 
Look at this glass of water. It is complete. You are not this glass of water. You could die in 30 days, or you could not die in 30 days, right? That's not what you want to hear from your doctor. But what is death? <laughs> so these, what he calls tensive symbols, are these things that point you uh, somewhere else, or tensive um, indicators. But symbols, he says, oh, first of all, they always draw attention to themselves, right? You look at a symbol. You have to see the symbolic thing. It's a Eucharist, whatever it is. And, but when you get there, it's not limited to the earthly manifestation. He says there's a superabundance of meaning versus just an earthly meaning. So if you hang a sign that says altar over there with an arrow, basically that's all it is. It's a sign with an arrow. But you see the Blessed Sacrament, although you see the Blessed Sacrament, there's way more there than just its exterior reality. So he says it's, here's a good academic And that's phrase. not dependent on us. It is what it is, regardless of how we perceive it. Right, but we should, the more we know, the better we right. can perceive it. So it has an objective fullness that we may or may not receive if we're inclined or knowledgeable, but it's there either way. I think a good example, maybe you've used this before, is when you stand in front of the chapel here on campus, you see the sign that says Chapel of the Immaculate Conception, 1000 Principal Avenue, or whatever it is. But then you look at the edifice of the actual chapel, and the sign means one thing. You look at the edifice, and Dennis could give us you know, a 90-minute mystagogy on all of the different symbols. Well, okay, and so for... <laughs> just hypothetically later, speaking, okay. Dennis. So this, but this <laughs> is an example. About that. It's an example of what you're saying. There's just this great multiplicity of meanings. And this other one, too, when you look at the sign, it wants you to see the sign and then turn your attention away from it and look to somewhere the else right but when you see the symbolic edifice of the chapel it doesn't want to point you somewhere else it wants to kind of suck you in and draw you in and say focus focus deeper deeper not right. look over there right look deeper deeper through here and he says a symbol he calls it pregnant with a plentitude of meaning which a whole bunch of meaning which he says evoked rather than explicitly stated so you know, if you just said to somebody, I love you, okay, well, it's a start, right? But you could not say the word at all and get up in the middle of the night with the crying baby or do the dishes or uh, touch yeah, Jesse. the cheek or whatever. Like, it's, it's to enter into a reality more than just a flat-out say something, right? So, boom, I've stated it. Well, live up to it now, right? So, to encounter that is some kind of larger world that um, you surrender, he says, to enter a world of symbol, we surrender to their power and they, we allow them to carry us away. And we participate in their reality rather than just know that that reality exists. And that's a key uh, distinction as well. So there are analogies, for instance, which are not that, right? It's a comparison between two like things. So you can have a heart and you can have a pump and they're analogous to each other. Uh, it actually literally means analogos, the same word or the same um, shape. And then you can have myths which are traditional or legendary stories that sometimes are about gods but they don't really make the reality of the god present, they just kind of explain beliefs and practices that people are already um, doing. So he calls those pre-symbolic, the, the reality isn't, isn't there yet. And you, I don't know if you remember some of these things from English class, do you remember what a metaphor is? Metaphor uh, uses like or as. Right. He says comparisons of things not literally applicable but with resemblance. So it's a transfer of one thing. Um, or a simile. To another. Right. Can you give an example? A simile is a comparison of unlike things. And a metaphor is a comparison of, of like things. So you can say... Um, Your face is like the sun. <laughs> right. No, I mean, is that... Your face is not a sun. But you can say a pump is like a heart. They're similar. And, but they're not exactly the same where you can say, Chris, you're like a rose. You but know? then you could say, you know, your heart is a radiant sun, 
which is not close. That would be a simile. Right. Or you're a queen or you're a princess or you're whatever. Not you, not you, Chris. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're a lovely <laughs> wife. Um, and so these things are all ways of learning about something to say, oh, it's like that. But they're not the same thing as rendering that thing present. So you can say the Blessed Sacrament is like Thanksgiving Day because it's a feast, but it's not rendering the presence of God um, to you at that moment. So what's the bottom line in all this? Well, the bottom line is that symbols, or we call sacraments, give participatory knowledge that involves you and changes you and has a transforming effect. That's That's the key thing. When you encounter somebody who loves you and you experience their love, you're not dead to it, hopefully, but you are, you now know what it's like to be loved and you're better for it. See, but all these things he's talking about are kind of on the natural plane, right? You, he, he could be an atheist and write these things. He's talking on the natural world. So symbols kind of in their natural reality do all of these things. But he takes it to the next step. Right, because grace builds upon this natural foundation. What sacraments become then are like supernatural symbols. All of this groundwork he's laying with the symbolic, they're not analogies, they're not similes, they're not metaphors, they're not mere signifiers, they're not indicators. All of this gets taken up into the sacramental level. Right. And he says when you, when you encounter a symbol and you're actually brought into its reality, then it stirs the imagination. It releases hidden energies of the soul, right? So you, see, you encounter some beautiful thing, sort of like Paul on the road to Damascus, and suddenly his soul is awake and alive. And what's this? What happened to me? And he says it arouses the will to consistent and committed action. So what do you want to do? Yeah, so Give yourself res- to God. There's a, re- there's a reaction or a result or an, a plan of action or something that happens rather than just, oh, I, I see that now. Exactly. We see the beauty then of seeing sacramentally. If you could see your church and all of the liturgical rites that taking place, if you could see them for what they really were sacramental and how it could fire the imagination and move the heart and change you. That's what the church, and this, how the church wants us to this see. This is where this, the rubber does meet the road because we talk about fullness of sacramental expression all the time. We talk about mystagogical catechesis. We talk about beautiful churches, beautiful music, beautiful vestments, Ars Celebrandi, all the reasons to make the liturgy full. It's not just because, oh, we want to do what the books say. The books say that because what they want is that we're introduced, as Avery Dulles here says, to realms of awareness not normally accessible, what he calls discursive thoughts or the usual kind of scientific thinking. You can't just say, oh, I've heard down, down the road, somebody told me my wife loves me. How do you encounter that? Just somebody says it. Well, I think about it. Maybe she loves me. Maybe she don't. Maybe she doesn't. It's boom. I've experienced this thing. Now I know that it's true. And it's the, it's this realm of awareness of who she is, who uh, you love her. She, and there's a reaction there too. And the response is to love the other person um, back. So this, how are you going to talk about participatory awareness in the life of the Trinity, in the things of heaven, of the heavenly Jerusalem? What does it mean to be unfallen? What does it mean to encounter the, the radiant face of God? That the only way we can do that is through this symbolic mediation. Otherwise, it's just a, it's just a Bible study, right? Bible study is good. You know all the words in the Bible. But when you have a transformation and an experience of the face of Christ, then you are changed and different and brought into a realm that's otherwise completely inaccessible. So baptism, all the sacraments, every sacramental thing is on one hand kind of amazing. It's the explosive power of God rendering himself present in our world. On the other hand, it's just the method that he chose to uh, encounter. And if all you hang around is the level of indicator, oh yeah, there's a bunch of signs on the wall, uh, there's a book that I memorized. Well, that's not the same thing as encountering the 
liturgical jacuzzi. Remember that from a long, long time ago? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Reading about a jacuzzi is not the same as entering a jacuzzi. And suddenly you have all this knowledge about hot water and bubbles and all the things jacuzzis have because you've experienced it. And so symbol are the way, symbols are the way that we have this access to these things of God that are normally inaccessible. I like that that scripture um, point that you talk about because, you know, you could just read words on a page and it could just be just something that you read or you're taking in what the words are saying. But when you look at it from the point that it is the word of God, it's, it's totally elevated. And, and then there's a, there's a reaction to that. There's something that I would then feel after that. And then when you take that and you, and you show somebody speaking from an ambo, okay, now that's literally elevated. They're higher. You know, there's all this, there's a procession there. Mm-hmm. And so it, it makes that symbol of what is, what the words are like way more important. At the top of the heap of all of this, right, is participation in the very action of Christ. So we say all the time, Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He's offering himself. He's getting the, you know, glorified life of, of God the Father. He's pleading for us. You say, okay, well, that happens in heaven, big deal. Well, the symbolic nature of the liturgy means I can enter into that as a member of the mystical body. That activity, which is far away in heaven, is nonetheless happening here on this altar right now, and I can put myself on that altar, not just as a human kind of knowledge of this happening, but actually have that become real. This participatory, this is active participation language. It's not just a bunch of terms that pointy-headed academics want to talk about. So... He, he finishes up by saying there's some dangers here, you know, that symbols shouldn't be subject to arbitrary change, just, you know, into reinterpreting symbols all the time, you know, according to the secular standards of culture. And he says they come within the Christian tradition, they impl- Im- impose a certain discipline on us. Like we have to respect the nature of symbol, what they are, what, what it means. And um, you can add knowledge. All, all the knowledge of God is great. Bible studies, study the scriptures, but being a liturgiologist is a scientific studier of the liturgy. Being a liturgist is one who participates in those realities, and a symbol is the medium, just like water is the medium of a jacuzzi to know what that warmth and bubbles feel like. And so, very complicated, very simple, all at the same time. Well, hopefully this liturgy question is going to be very simple. What do you but think? great things will oh, be mediated it, through Oh, it. of course. Yeah. Obviously. Right, Chris? Mm, yes. Chris is here. He's good. <laughs> so you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here. But you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this question is from Charles. Charles says, Is there a proper way to wash altar linens or can I just throw them in the washing machine? 
What do you say to Charles? I say to Charles, there is a way. Oh, there is? There is a way. <laughs> kind of surprising. But it depends on what it is. If it's, um, say, the altar cloth, right? You don't, have, you don't need to do any particular special thing. However, if it's a corporal, which is the sort of big square of white cloth that you'd see underneath the chalice, or a purificator, which is a kind of smaller napkin-shaped thing that they use to wipe the chalice with, those may contain particles of the precious blood, either, mm-hmm. you know, that under the species of bread or wine. You can actually see the stains on the corporals quite frequently. And you wouldn't just throw those in the washing machine because the body and blood of Christ would wind up in the oh. sewage system, right? So for the same reason you don't pour excess precious blood down the drain, and you consume it, there's a special treatment. So, Chris, do you know what it says? I know that... This is fascinating. The, I didn't know it? this. Yeah, the, the USCCB's committee on the liturgy once put out some suggestions or directives on how to care for altar linens, and I think, were you able to, to find that, Dennis? Uh, yes, well, it's the, the normal uh, directions there are that corporals and purificators are supposed to be soaked first in water for a sufficient amount of time to remove any traces of the Blessed Sacrament. And then that water is either poured into the ground or a sacrarium, and then the altar linens may mm. be washed in the normal way. So the idea is you don't have to go berserk looking for microscopic particles of, of anything, but you do the reasonable amount of care, and then that water supposedly uh, gets rid of all those traces of the Eucharist, and then that's given the proper treatment, and then straight to the Tide Pods. <laughs> Watch out for those Tide Pods. Don't that's eat for the sure. Tide Pods. <laughs> uh, all right, Charles, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.